And while we're focusing on a chapter that deals with celebration, oftentimes celebration comes after great struggles. And the life of a believer in Messiah is a life of conflict and challenges. Paul, at the end of his days, said, I have fought the good fight. It was not a walk in the park for Paul, neither will it be for us. It is a fight that we are involved in and engaged in. That is why Paul says in the book of Ephesians that we are to put on the whole armor of God. So that like Paul, we could say at the end of our days, we have fought a good fight. Not only do the scriptures relate the life of a believer with respect to fighting, but also with respect to running. Paul says that he has kept the faith and he has finished the course, that he has ran a good race. Running takes exertion and it takes a great deal of stress and endurance. Paul says in Romans chapter 12 that we are to devote ourselves to God as living sacrifices. All of these images denote hardship and stress, anxiety, and strain. That the life of a believer, contrary to what many people are telling us, is not an easy life at all to live. It is a hard life. It is hard to study God's word, and it is harder to apply it to our lives. It is hard to pray, and to pray as God would have us to pray when he would want us to pray. It is hard to be available to one another as the scriptures tell us we ought to be, that we are to bear one another's burdens. These are challenges in the life of believers and in the life of living in a biblical mandated way. But at the conclusion of such struggles, there's opportunity to celebrate the accomplishments that God brings into our lives. When we look at the book of Nehemiah and the events that he endured, we come to this chapter that is filled with celebration. But make no mistake about it, Nehemiah came through some very hard roads before him. But God brought him through each and every one. Let's think about what God brought Nehemiah through. I can't help but think of that black spiritual, you know. Look what he brought me through, right? That's the, way, that's the main phrase of that, that song. Look what he brought us through. And when I look at Nehemiah's life, remember in chapter 1, he hears about the city of Jerusalem and how its walls are destroyed. And he learns how the people are in disarray and are discouraged. So he now begins to mourn. And the first thing God brings him through is King Artaxerxes' permission to go to Jerusalem in order to rebuild the walls. This was no easy moment for Nehemiah. First of all, he was of good service to the king. Why would he let him go? And second of all, the king in the book of Ezra earlier had already issued a decree not permitting the walls of Jerusalem to ever be rebuilt. And so 
the king had to change his mind about an edict he had already signed. And God moves on the heart and mind of King Artaxerxes and does change his heart and mind about that and gives Nehemiah the opportunity to return to Jerusalem or to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. He had to have the king's permission and the king had to have his heart and mind and edict transformed. God brought him through that hurdle. When Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem, the city is in a shambles because he needs to think and to pray as to how to go about this tremendous job of rebuilding the walls at night. He begins to ride around the city to survey its condition. As he's surveying its its condition, he is also praying that God will give him a procedure by which he can rebuild the walls. And so the second thing God had to provide for Nehemiah was a plan. How could he mobilize the citizens of Jerusalem, the people of Israel, to rebuild the walls around the city? So he had to come up with a plan. And then the third thing that he had to struggle with was he had to encourage the people to do it. Keep in mind, that again was no easy job for Nehemiah. For 160 years, the walls had been down. For 160 years, the Jewish people in the environs of Jerusalem were no longer living in the city, but rather headed out to the suburbs around the city because it was in such disarray. But Nehemiah prayed that he might be used of God to encourage the people of Israel, those that had returned and were now living in Jerusalem, and to mobilize them and to encourage them to do the work of rebuilding. So God brought him through a transition where the king changed his mind about the city. God gave Nehemiah a plan to rebuild the walls. God had used Nehemiah to encourage the people to join him in the rebuilding of those walls. But then Nehemiah faced some incredible opposition from Sambalat and Tobiah the Ammonite. These individuals confronted Nehemiah. They attempted to keep him from the job God had called him to do. The first thing they did was to ridicule him, to make fun of him and the work that he was doing. The second thing they did was to threaten him physically, that they were going to harm him and those that aided him. What Nehemiah did was he devoted himself to prayer, to move on the hearts of the people and to join with them despite the opposition. He reminded himself of the calling God had given him to rebuild the walls. And that's why the famous phrase of Nehemiah, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. He reminded himself of God's calling. He reminded himself of God's faithfulness in what God had already done. And he kept on with the work God had called him to do. But that was not the only kind of opposition Nehemiah faced. He also faced opposition from within. His own people, the wealthy among Israel, were taking advantage of the poor. 
And he had to come up with a way of reconciling that injustice. And he does. And he accuses those who are wealthy of not being fair to those who were not as fortunate as they. And they changed their actions and they began to help those who were poor. Now, Nehemiah finally got to that point where he rebuilt the walls by the aid of the citizens. From the beginning of that process, when he first surveyed the walls, to its completion was 52 days. It's just an incredible amount of time, short amount of time that was utilized in order to rebuild those walls. Someone that at one of our Messianic uh, prayer breakfasts, who was an engineer by trade, had calculated that they had to have built two and a half miles circumference around the city at that time, somewhere around 200 feet of wall every day in order to accomplish that task. So they put their minds to this job, and they were not deterred. But Nehemiah knew that there was more that needed to be done than just putting stone upon stone. There was a need for the people to experience a spiritual renewal and revival. So the next thing that he does is to face the challenge of spiritual life that needed to come alive among the people. And so the first thing he does is he now steps aside for the first time. This is around chapter 8 or so. He steps aside from the main action. Up until chapter through chapter 7, he's the main character in the book. And it's all written in the first person. But now in chapter 8, it's all he and they. It's not until this chapter that we're going to look at in a moment where the first person appears again, and I. So now Nehemiah turns the reins over to another. And he turns it over to Ezra, who is a priest, a Levite, and the head of the, of the priests serving in Israel and Jerusalem. And they build a huge platform upon which Nehemiah and some 13 Levites stand shoulder to shoulder. And Nehemiah begins to read the law, and Ezra begins to read the law before the people. And the other Levites begin to translate and descend upon the people to explain its meaning. So Nehemiah encourages spiritual revival that comes through the reading and understanding and reflection on the Word of God. The people are moved very deeply and they begin to mourn because of their sin and their unfaithfulness over the decades in which they have lived in the city. And as they mourn, the mourning gets so intense that Ezra and Nehemiah tell everyone to go home and to eat and celebrate because the wall has gone up. But not only do the people then move from a point of which they hear the word of God and begin to have it applied to their life as they reflect on their own life and see their great need, but then they do something about it. They determine that they will live for the glory of God. They don't do that perfectly, as we're going to see when we get to chapter 13. But they made a declaration to themselves and one another that we will live for the glory of God. So determined were they that they actually wrote out a covenantal bond with God and signed on the dotted line that we will do this. And revival begins to break out among the people. But not only must there be a revival among the people, 
but there needs to be a repopulating of the city because the people have not lived in Jerusalem because the walls have been torn down. The city was reduced to rubble. And even though the walls were now up, inside the walls of Jerusalem, the homes and buildings were all torn down and needed to be rebuilt as well. And so Ezra and Nehemiah come up with a plan to repopulate the city. It would take sacrifice on the part of the people. They placed a lottery out among the population, and one out of ten families upon whom the lot fell was to move back into Jerusalem. At this point, many of the people lived outside the environs of Jerusalem or outside the city walls of Jerusalem, but now they want to rebuild and reestablish this city. So one out of ten are forced to return, and they do. But then there are also the leaders among the people of Israel that choose to be a model and example, and they themselves voluntarily enter the city to establish their livelihoods and their lives there. And then there are a number of people who simply volunteered and said, we want to be a part of the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And so they entered the city. Now that revival has hit, now that the city is repopulated, now that they can reflect back on all that God has done, in chapter 12, we have the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem and of its people to God. So look at verse 27. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived, were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. The singers also were brought together from the region around Jerusalem. Look down in verse 30. When the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. So this is really, really fantastic, especially if you love music, especially if you love to sing, and especially if you love it loud, so that that's all that you hear. Take a look at verse 43. Look what, he, what the text says. And on that day they offered great sacrifice, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. So if you don't like it loud, you didn't want to be there. But if you liked it loud, earplugs and all, they heard for miles and miles around. There is a need for such joy in our lives. There's a need for celebration in our body. And I must say that too often, too often in my experience, and even in my own life, there has been more sorrow and sadness than there ought to be. There ought to be great joy that characterizes our lives. For the joy of the Lord is our strength, is what the scripture says. Now, I want to talk about joy because I don't want us to think this is just an emotional high. Because joy is a very deep reality of our lives that comes alongside great challenges, as I shared at the outset, 
that every one of us must face. As the psalmist said, weeping may endure for a time, but joy comes in the morning. And so we need to learn from this passage of how to rejoice. It was Nietzsche, I believe, who had said that he would believe more about what the redeemed of the Lord had said if they looked like they were redeemed, if their lives were redeemed looking to them. But I know that very often our lives don't look that way and our lives don't feel that way, but they should more often than not. I know we all go through the valley of the shadow of death, and there's place for sorrow. In fact, Yeshua himself models such sorrow. When we remember how he had heard of the death of Lazarus, his good friend, the shortest verse in the English translation says Yeshua wept. So why did he weep? He wept, I think, for a variety of reasons, not least of which was the loss of his wonderful brother in the Lord and friend. He now was not available to him. He would be, but he wasn't right then and there. And no doubt that contributed to some degree to his weeping. He must have wept because of the lack of the individuals around the tomb's belief and trust in him. For that's why he came. He came to give life and to give it more abundantly, more joyfully, more wonderfully. And those around the tomb could not see that he could provide that for them. And so no doubt he wept because of the unbelief of those who were right then and there around the tomb. I think he might have also wept because the death of Lazarus was just one death that millions and billions would experience in the course of history. A death that none of us ever were consigned to experience. Because when God created us, he created us in his image. He created us to enjoy him for eternity. He created us to enjoy all that he had made. And death was not a part of his creation. But death crept in because of the evil one. The marvelous thing is, God has done something about it. As we say in Boston, he did something to reverse the curse. You have to think about that one. But he reversed the curse. If we embrace him and life, is ours for the receiving because Yeshua said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So no doubt Yeshua mourned because this was one more death that was not intended to ever be experienced. The point is he wept, but yet at the same time, the book of Hebrews tells us that he went to the cross, his own death, because of the great joy that was set before him. It's weird, isn't it? This idea of sorrow and joy mingled together. So those in Jerusalem are moved to great rejoicing. But it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens because of what 
has already transpired that I've shared with you and what is explained here in this text. Now, what happens here is the Levites, the singers, the musicians, Jamie must love, those with the loud, clanging cymbals were brought together to lead the throng of the inhabitants of Jerusalem in praise, in adoration, in worship, and in thanksgiving. What Nehemiah, if you look at verse 31, the first person pronoun begins again, I had the leaders of Judah go up on the top of the wall. So I don't know how wide the walls of the city of Jerusalem were. Maybe they were 10 feet wide, 8 feet wide. I have had the opportunity to walk clear around the present walls of the ancient city of Jerusalem. In fact, I have photographs from every angle from the top of the wall. As I spent the day, I walked up and just went right around the ramparts all around the city. And I've got slides to prove it. It's going back a ways, the 70s. But it was amazing to go up there and just walk around and look down on the old city of today of Jerusalem and to see its inhabitants and the way things are laid out. It was really pretty cool. What Nehemiah does is he splits the people, the citizens of Jerusalem, into two groups. One is led by Ezra and some of the priests. They go up the wall and they start circling on top of the wall as they're singing and rejoicing and praising God. The other throng is led by Nehemiah. He goes up the wall and goes the opposite direction. So you've got two of these groups going in two directions around the city walls of Jerusalem, singing, playing their instruments, resounding joyfully to the glory of God. When they come down, they then enter the temple. And they continue to praise God in the temple. They continue then to offer sacrifices to the glory of God and to the acknowledgement of him as their king and as their Lord. It must have been really amazing. And it must have been really neat to be among that crowd. They sang, no doubt, some of the psalms. But as I was reading through the psalms, I think there is one in particular they must have sung. You can turn there with me if you want. You don't have to, but Psalm 48 starts out by saying, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. In the city of our God, his holy mountain, it is beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth. Like the utmost heights of Zephon is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. God is in her citadels. He has shown herself to be her fortress. When the kings joined forces, when they advanced together, they saw her and were astounded. They fled in terror. Trembling seized them there, pain like that of a woman in childbirth. You destroyed them like ships of Tarship, shattered by an east wind. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord Almighty, in the city of our God. God makes her secure forever. Selah. Within your temple, O God, we meditate on your unfailing love. 
Let your name, O God, your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Mount Zion rejoices. The villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments. Catch this. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Count her towers. Consider well her ramparts. View her citadels. And you may tell of them to the next generation. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to the end. What a psalm. But I love that part, walk about Zion. And that's exactly what they did. Why did he have them walk around the city like that singing? I can't help but think that he's thinking about Joshua. And how when Joshua entered the promised land to take the city of Jericho, he walked around it for six days, one day apiece, and then on the seventh or on the sixth day, seven times around, and God gave them the city. Could it be that they marched around in joyful praise around the city of Jerusalem now at the time of Nehemiah in anticipation of God's renewing of the city of Jerusalem so that it would be a praise in the earth. Keep in mind that Abraham was told to walk the width and length of the land God was promising him. He told him to walk all over the land I am giving you. In the north from the river Euphrates, in the south to the Wadi El Arish, the river of Egypt, To the east, the Jordan River, and to the west, the Mediterranean. He said, walk all over it because wherever your foot steps, I'm giving you that land. Could it be that they were thinking about that promise to Abraham and thinking about Joshua and now they themselves take to the ramparts to walk around the city of Jerusalem, claim it for the glory of God, and for the blessings he might bestow upon them that they have now rebuilt, repopulated, and have experienced revival in the city. I think it's a very real possibility. We don't know for sure, but I think a very real possibility. But look what led to all of this. Number one, notice the, f- the focus of joy. Joy is not just happiness, something that is momentary. Joy is eternal. Happiness is temporary. It's not like happiness because happiness is affected by circumstances where joy can exist despite those circumstances. There can be a deep realization that things are okay, but it necessitates first and foremost a living relationship with the living God. Because that's the only way we can ever be assured that things are okay when everything is falling apart. That God is really in control. He is the sovereign Lord and he can be trusted. He has a great track record. And we can rely upon him at any time of need and in any kind of need we might face. The focus of joy is so pervasive. Look again at verse 43. Four times the word joy is found in this text. It says, On that day they offered great sacrifice, rejoicing, because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. 
and the sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. Four times this focus of joy. And I like that the passage doesn't say the noise of their rejoicing, but it's their rejoicing that was heard. It was almost like though the sounds were heard in the distance, they knew that that those sounds were not just uh, abstractions, but that they came from the depths of the heart and soul. They heard the sound of joy, not just the sound of music and voices. They heard it joyfully. It tells me how important joy is because it's infectious. Have you ever been around joyful people? One of the most joyful people in our congregation is Gary Morgan. (laughs) No doubt. I love being with Gary. He'll tell you. Whenever I have friends that are visiting, I take them to Gary. You could ask him and Susie. Not only for the view, which is wonderful, but I want people to meet them because they're wonderful. They're wonderful for a variety of reasons, not least of which is the joy they exude. And it's strengthening when you experience it. And whatever your trials or troubles are, if I just call Gary and I say, hey, Gary, what's going on? I don't even tell him I'm struggling with something, but it just dissipates. That's what he does for me and countless numbers of others. That's why he has so many good friends. Joyful people have friends because people want to be around joyful people. If you are a moper, now you know why people don't want to be with you. I'm just saying it like it is. We want to be around people that are happy people. Not simply because everything is going well, they've got enough money in the bank and enough initials after their name and enough prestige that we would all love to experience at some point. Not because of that. Because of something deep within the recesses of their being that exhibits a concern for others that things might be well for them. Joy is critical to the life of the believer. It might be that we don't lead enough people to know the joy of our lives because we don't know how to experience joy. Sometimes we know how to experience, but we refuse to experience because we think it's disingenuous to our lives and personal experience. But make no, about, make no mistake about it, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And in case you missed it, he says, and again I say, rejoice. When we come together, and I mentioned to Edward, I wanted to change the service around today. But I didn't want to get in the way of the teachers with the young people. But I wanted to preach right after the welcome. I wanted to dismiss the kids and then share my message so that we would end singing songs of praise together. In some way, now I have to hope that you'll remember what I said for a week, which is not going to happen. I rarely remember what I said after a week, after a few hours. But my hope is that we will remember something, so that when we come next week to worship God, we do so with joy no matter what we've experienced. 
that we don't come ready to complain about something. Because there's always something to complain about. He preaches too long. He tells not enough jokes or too many jokes. Or he didn't mention me and I did this. And there's always reason to complain. Believe me. You know, I look myself in the mirror and I say, why didn't I say that? Why didn't I do that? I add to the pie of complaint. But we need to do something about that, don't you think? And like these that are up on the wall singing joyfully, how can we but sing joyfully when we remember that Messiah has come, has completed all that the prophets said he would do, and has given us eternal life? We should always come. There may be those moments of sorrow, I understand, but generally speaking, we should always come ready to rejoice in him and ready to share joy with one another. There's a second thing here that strikes me. Look what they also say. Not only did they celebrate joyfully, but also with thanksgiving. The reason they could celebrate joyfully is because they were grateful for what God had done. I am sure some people died on the job. I'm sure some people left the walls and said, I've had enough. There were those that would not repopulate the city. And there were those, perhaps, that didn't experience revival. But there were those who stayed. There were those who worked hard. There were those who did re-enter the city. And so they were thankful for what God did do. I think, you know, years ago I heard Billy Graham say one of his greatest regrets was he didn't pray enough. Can you imagine that? He didn't spend enough time in prayer. I think one of my regrets, that certainly would be one, but one of my regrets is never having journaled my walk with the Lord. When I think I came to faith when I was 17, I don't know how many years ago that is now, 40-something years or whatever. Thank you. I don't know how many years, 40 or so. And uh, it's actually more than that, yikes, 42. But if I had chronicled all the things God had done in my life, I would never have a reason to complain about anything. I had breakfast with Barry, and I was sharing with him how God has just watched over Mary Lou and I in terms of ministry in all these years. We were in ministry when we were 17 years old when I think about it. I don't want to go into all the details. I'd love to share some of that with you. But when I thought back, and I'm just sort of regurgitating these things to Barry. Hopefully I wasn't boring him. But as I was sharing with him these things, I said, it's amazing what God has done in my life. And if I had just written them down, I could just go through them and I'd say, he really did do great things. I shouldn't be so upset about anything. But they were grateful because they could reflect on what God had done, not only for the people of Israel, but for them in particular. If you want to be joyful and thankful, you got to stop thinking about the problems you have because they're not going away anytime soon. You need to remember what God has done in your life to give you hope and to give you anticipation of greater things yet to come. We're going to have all eternity. I remember my my good friend Bill Cox who taught me how to sail. 
I remember we were out on the Chesapeake Bay and his 36-foot Pearson. Oh, man, that boat was so beautiful. But the things we did together were just so wonderful. And I'll never forget them, and I'll never be ungrateful for what he shared with me. And I remember one time we were talking about sailing, and then we were looking at the scripture in which it says, in the new heavens and new earth, new earth, there's no water. There's no oceans. And I said, Bill... If there's no oceans, there's no water, what are we going to do? We're not going to be able to enjoy sailing again. He said, we'll sail the heavens. We'll sail space. (laughs) I said, okay, I'm going with you wherever you're going. There are great things in store for all of us who know the Lord and have received of his grace. And so we only have gratitude and thanksgiving. One last thing. If you look at verse 30, notice that it necessitates purification or dedication. And that's why I said at the front end, this is not just an emotional pep talk, or at least I don't intend it to be that. There needs to be gratitude. There needs to be a sense of real joy. But it comes when we are purified. And it comes when we, and by purification, it doesn't mean made to be uh, without sin. It means to be separated, to be set apart for God's service. That's why they purify the gates and the doors and the walls. They're setting it apart. This is a special place where God now dwells. Now, I don't like to think of the sanctuary here as a place where we have to walk on eggshells. But this is a special place. At least it ought to be. We ought to help our kids to understand that. Because this is a place where God meets with us and has been meeting with people for decades. I told you uh, months ago when we got an email from a daughter who was adopted into the pastor's home who pastored this church, when it was a Christian Reformed church, I don't know how many years ago, it was 50, 60 years ago or sometime. And she had just learned that she was Jewish, adopted into this pastor and his wife's home, and that she had found the Lord here. And for whatever reason, got onto our website, saw that we were right in the very place where she grew up. And in that email to us, to me, She was just rejoicing that we are there. And she said, that is a very special place because God dwells there and saved her here and countless of other people. And so this is a purified place, although it may be used for any number of things. But we ought always to remember God dwells in our midst. We are tabernacles of God's spirit, but when we come together as a body, He dwells in our midst. And that's why we want our place to look decent. So that when people come in, they will be confronted with a clean environment where God can speak to their hearts. An organized environment, a place that speaks of our Lord. These lights and these candles and things are meant to remind us of the sevenfold uh, fullness of the Spirit of God that rests on our Messiah. The light above the ark is to remind us that the word of God that dwells in the Torah or the Torah scroll that signifies the word of God, it's within the word of God that we learn of Messiah and of his glory who is the light of the world and the light of our lives. 
And so we need to remember that we are not our own. We are bought with our price, and we have been separated from the peoples of the world to be a light of God to each and every one. Yeshua himself tells us we should let our light shine before men that they would see our good works but glorify our Father who is in heaven. So we need to be a purified people, a separated people, devoted and dedicated to his service. If you want to experience joy, you must first of all know Messiah who alone possesses joy and can give it to you. Secondly, you need to reflect on what God has done for you because he loves you and has given you life that you might find him and know him and that he might find you. If you want joy, it means you need to know him first. If you want joy, you need to have an attitude of gratitude. To, other, uh, to what God has provided for you. If you want to have joy, you have to have a sense that I'm separated as unto the Lord for his glory and for his honor, and therefore he alone is my strength. His joy is our help. So let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you that you have done all this and more for each and every one of us. May we not delay in embracing you as our Savior and Messiah. May we not delay in recognizing what you have done, not only for us, but what you will do in us, in renewing our hearts and souls. Father, we crave joy. We crave this sense of celebration. And as Nehemiah and those in Jerusalem joyfully celebrated what you have done, not only in building a wall, but revitalizing a people, Lord, you have done that and more for us. You have revived our souls and made us alive for the first time in our lives. And for that, we are most grateful. You have placed us in a body, a family, a community of Jews and non-Jews who love you. And like the building of the walls around Jerusalem, you are building your congregation here at Beth Ariel and in many other places. And so, Father, we thank you for your work here among us, a work that has gone on for over three decades, and we pray will go on for many more until you return. And so, Lord, help us to be the kinds of men and women and boys and girls that you would have us to be, that joyfully celebrate your goodness and joyfully convey the marvelous grace of God that is available to each and every one who would call upon the name of Messiah. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.